Good morning, everybody. Happy Easter. Easter is a celebration of victory over death, hell, and the grave. It is an incredible, enthusiastic rejoicing that human mankind with limitations, frailty, sinfulness has nothing else to fear in life. We are begotten of God. The wicked one can never touch us. We have eternal life. We have the power of His Holy Spirit living in us. We are bad to the bone, thanks to what He did on the cross. It's a great, great day. So glad to see you. You know, one of the dreams of companies is to come up with a logo that's powerful and compelling, and when people see it, you want them to think of the company, and you want them to want to go buy the product. Well, take a look at a logo here on the visual. What company does that logo make you think of? You're very good. In fact, there's a word for that logo, the swoosh. It's a sign of victory. It's a sign of a winner. And we associate it with a lot of famous athletes so that people and men that see it will say, you know, if I'll buy that shirt with the swoosh on it, I'll be the man too. I'll be like that champion athlete. And people are willing to pay a lot of money for a shirt just because it's got a swoosh on it. It's a very strong, compelling logo in our day. Look at this visual, Golden Arches. What company does that make every parent think of? McDonald's. You deserve a break today. This is the sign of the Happy Meal, the meal of great joy. When little kids see that logo, their hearts beat real fast, and they say, if I can just have one of those Happy Meals, I'll be happy. And of course, they're not. The only person happy that billions of these Happy Meals are sold is that irritating, smiling Ronald McDonald. But we see that logo, that sign of abundance, and our hearts beat a little faster because we know you can get wonderful, delicious, fattery, artery-clogging food there. You can get it cheap, and you can get it fast. You can get it in a drive through so the whole family can eat in the van the way God intended families to do. <laughs> Take a look at visual number three. That's not a peace symbol. No, no, think of cars. Janis Joplin sang a song in the form of a prayer. Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all have one. I must make amends. The sign of status. They had an ad a year or two ago that said, you can't buy happiness, but now you can lease it. <laughs> logos. We live in a world of logos, and people are paid big bucks to think up those things and figure out ways to make them real clear and compelling so that when you and I see it, we'd think, I'd like to be associated with what that logo stands for. And for 2,000 years, the clearest, most remembered, most widely recognized symbol of what the Christian faith stands for is two pieces of wood stuck together on which criminals were executed. An instrument of death is our corporate logo. And if you're a follower of Christ, this is the logo that you build your life on. Nobody chooses logo like that in our day. I mean, how likely is it that our power company, CPS, will choose as its logo an electric chair with the slogan, the power's on. <laughs> I don't think so. 
I've got a concern that in our world, crosses are common. You can pick them up in any jewelry store. We see them all the time, and we forget the shock. We forget what it really stood for. It's not the sign for a winner. It's the sign of death. It's not a sign of abundance. It's the sign of ultimate total loss. It's not a sign of status. It's the ultimate expression of humiliation and shame. And I think it's a profound mystery that the God of this universe, who holds all power, all might, and all wealth, should choose as the expression of His heart and love a cross. And for a few minutes, I want us to be clear on why the cross stands at the center of the Christian faith. I want us to see the pain of the cross, the power of the cross, and the difference that cross can make as we become people of the cross. Let me give you a little history of crucifixion that you might not know to understand the context of that cross. Romans were good at executions, and they did a lot of them. They could do it quick. They could do it slow. They could do it private. They could do it public. They could burn you, stone you. They could disembowel you with a sword. But crucifixion was a lot more cumbersome deal. It took four soldiers and a centurion to oversee. It took hours, sometimes a couple of days. It was time-consuming. It cost a lot of money. The Romans used crucifixion when they wanted to do two things. When they wanted to maximize your pain and stretch the agony as long as they could. Second, where they could maximize public shame and humiliation. The man who was condemned would be forced to carry the cross beam on his back. There would be a long procession through the town. The Romans would take the longest route where the most people could see what was going on. The soldiers would walk in front of the condemned man carrying a sign proclaiming the crime of which the condemned man was accused. Now the intent was to make this crucifixion very public and draw a huge crowd of people who were supposed to taunt and humiliate the one hanging on the cross until he died. And the idea was to make the condemned man a spectacle. You know, since the Romans were occupying Israel, they wanted to discourage anybody that might rebel or gain freedom and independence. So they felt crucifixion would put enough fear in the people to keep them quiet. Crucifixion was used primarily in cases of treason or insurrection. It was such a cruel death, Roman law prohibited any Roman citizen from crucifixion. If you were a Roman citizen, no matter what crime you committed, you could be executed, but you could not be crucified. I suppose some of the traditions that we see and take for granted, if you go back to Bible days, the cross was not uh, put out in a lumber factory where it has perfect edges and it's squared and it's polished and it looks really nice. It's not even called a cross by the apostles and by the Old Testament. It's called a tree because they would cut a tree down, just a rough tree, split it, put the cross beam on it, and be a cross. Remember, this is not about being nice and pretty. This is rough, painful, and shameful. So, I know our pictures are all going to have beautiful log beams cut by a furniture store. That's not what a crucifixion cross was. Secondly, they weren't 30 feet in the air. Another tradition. All they had to do was get you six inches off the ground, your feet off the ground, so that all of your muscles are pulled, they go into spasms, they lock up and you suffocate. It's tortuous. And secondly, if you're 30 feet in the air, how's anybody going to spit on you or taunt you? 
I, I'm just asking questions. You know, I read the Bible, and then I listen to what people say, and I look at pictures, and I thought, nope. It doesn't change what happened, but I just want you to understand that in the shameful thing, they want people to see your nakedness. You didn't have on a cloth. You were stripped naked. It's about shame. It's about being able to slap you, curse you, spit on you, taunt you, and mock you. You're right there where people can see you, and you can't do anything about it, okay? You getting a better picture? In most cases, the condemned man, like Jesus, was first beaten, 39 lashes. That with whips that had metal, stone, and bone put in them. And the idea was, I want to rip out chunks of your flesh. It wasn't uncommon for some people to die while being beaten out of shock and loss of blood. After the beating, the cross beam of the cross would be placed on the same back of that person, and the person would be forced to carry it through the town to the place of execution. Then the cross would be laid on the ground, the condemned man put on it, and they would drive spikes through the wrist and either put the two feet together and drive a spike through it, or they would tie the feet together. If the person pushed up on the feet to inhale, the pain would be unimaginable. If the person went limp to breathe, the pain was unbearable on the wrist. It was a slow, agonizing death, and they were left in the heat and the cold for hours or days subject to exposure again for torture. The usual cause of death was suffocation. The muscles became paralyzed, and it says Jesus experienced for you and me that. That's what was going on when He looked out from the cross at the people taunting Him and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, here's what's interesting. The Gospels actually say very little about Jesus' physical suffering on the cross. In St. Mark's Gospel, it just says, and they crucified Him. Doesn't say very much. And here's the difference between what Jesus went through and what anybody else on a cross suffered. He experienced a form of spiritual suffering that you and I could only barely imagine. So much so, it made His physical suffering almost inconsequential. The Bible says that on the cross, He who knew no sin, who never experienced guilt, never had a moment of shame, never knew a pain of regret, he who knew no sin became sin for our sake, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Think about the darkest thing you've ever done. Maybe you betrayed a marriage vow. Maybe you went through an abortion. Maybe it was an act of road rage and somebody was killed. Maybe it was an act of deceit that caused you to lose a job or a friendship. Maybe it's some path of behavior or addiction that you'd be greatly shamed by if other people knew it. Well, you add to that the guilt and pain and shame and regret and destructiveness of every person who's ever lived, and every sin that's ever been committed, every murder from the time of Cain and Abel to today and into the future, every seduction, every betrayal, and every genocide, and imagine feeling the horror and despair of all that guilt and sin being placed on one person at one time, and then add to that the awfulness of a holy, righteous God, His judgment and His anger being directed at you. It's unimaginable. And picture that Jesus' entire life he had never known rejection. He had perfect union with the Father throughout eternity. He had never known a single moment of loneliness. He had never known for a moment what it was like to be unloved by the Father. Yet on the cross, He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What would it mean to be completely forsaken by God? 
You know, in this world, none of you or I will ever know. Even people who shake their fist and defy God today experience good gifts from Him. He wakes them up every morning. He gives them breath to breathe. On the cross, Jesus experienced the horror of what it'd be like to be utterly forsaken by God. Complete spiritual darkness, utterly forsaken, utterly hopeless. That's why He said in the Garden of Gethsemane, my soul is in anguish. I'm sorrowful to the point of death. He thought He might die before the crucifixion. His physical suffering was nothing compared to this pain. He was mistreated by authorities. He was mocked by crowds of people. He was deserted, abandoned, betrayed by his best friends. But his real suffering was a spiritual suffering you and I could hardly imagine. Scripture says that on the cross he redeemed us from the curse by becoming the curse for us. He experienced supernatural suffering and guilt that you and I will never know so that you and I can experience a supernatural forgiveness and healing we could never earn. Well, that leads us to the second aspect of the cross, the power of the cross. It was very apparent to all of the onlookers that day, what took place on the cross when Jesus died was an act of extraordinary spiritual power. The Bible says He hung on the cross. The land became dark. The earth shook. We're told that when He died, the veil in the temple was split from top to bottom. A centurion looked up and said, truly, this is the Son of God. Now, understand the kind of power released in that cross. First, there's the power of forgiveness. Because on that one man, Jesus, God laid the guilt of the whole human race. It says in Isaiah, and the iniquity of us all was laid upon Him. Your guilt and my guilt on that cross with Jesus, your sin, my sin, with Jesus. And the Bible says, the blood of Jesus cleanses us of every sin. When that veil in the temple was ripped open, God was saying, I want you to have full access to me. You come to me anytime you want because of my son Jesus and his sacrifice. You can live in my presence all the time. Wow. Even in this world, we don't get access to very powerful people, do we? It's not, not easy. And the human race lives under the sad truth that we are sinful, God is holy, and we've been cut off from Him by our sin. But on the cross, God says, hey, because of what my son did on the cross, the veil is ripped into. Through Christ, you can approach my throne, the throne of grace and mercy, and you can come with boldness. You don't have to come in fear. You don't have to crawl. You can come boldly. Listen, I have access to the Father through Christ, St. Paul says. I've got to be very respectful here. I'm a very, uh, I'm very honorable of Mary, Virgin Mary, very honorable, very, very respectful and honorable towards her, an incredible woman. And we preach that. But you can't get to the Father through Mary, and you can't get there through any of these apostles. And if you read what they did, even walking with Jesus, I got it made. They are stinkers. They bragged over who would be the greatest. There was jealousy among them. They, they, it, it's unbelievable. Here's what Scripture says by St. Paul. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. They only, it's not Rick, it's not a, it's not a pastor, it's not a pope, it's not a, a priest. You are all priests and kings if you're a Christian. You have direct access to the Father through Christ, and He says, you can come to me anytime you want, and you come boldly. My kids, do, now they're in their 30s, they don't crawl into my office or on my phone humbly respect. It's a, Daddy, I need some money, or Daddy, I blah, blah, blah. It's an intimate relationship, and they come boldly. 
Well, God says, I want you through Christ to come boldly to me. Don't crawl down the aisle. You don't have to beat yourself. Father, beat Jesus for you. Most of us need a good beating, but he's already taken my beating. So I don't have to beat myself up. I don't have to condemn myself. He's already been condemned. He bore my iniquity. He took my pain. He took my guilt and my shame. And he says, now you can come to me anytime through Christ. The cross is also the power of reconciliation. People can be reconciled not just to God, but to other people. Paul, in writing to the church at Ephesus, knew the deep hatred and racism that existed between Jew and Gentile. They wouldn't speak or eat with each other. But Paul said that on the cross, Jesus tore the veil or dividing wall of hostility that separated Jew and Gentile, tore it down, making them one in Christ. And people who had been bitter enemies could become brothers and sisters. That's why throughout the New Testament, you're referred to as Brother Paul or sister. It's family talk. It's because of what Jesus did. That cross is not a symbol of nationalism. It's not a symbol of race. It's not a symbol of gender. It is a symbol of the God who became flesh, who made all of us one in Him. So, so much so that He says, I'm sorry. There's no Jew or Gentile, no slave or free, no male or female, no African-American, Caucasian, Asian, Hispanic, for you are one in Christ. Martin Luther King Jr. said, the most segregated hour in America is 11 o'clock on Sunday. Apparently a lot of churches didn't get the memo, tear it down. And people who had hatred and bigotry through Christ get a new heart change and become one. It's, it's, that gets people's attention. John the beloved, John the apostle of love, all this guy wanted to do was kill you. Listen, he's called a son of thunder. He didn't get that by being huggy. He was mean as a snake. Any sound that wanted to not allow Jesus in or to be hostile, he says, Lord, Let's call fire down from heaven and incinerate them. And Jesus was, back off, John. You don't know what spirit you're of. I didn't come to burn people up. I came to save them. And yet this guy, through Jesus, becomes the apostle of love. Who could do that? Only Jesus could do that. He changes your heart. Here's what religion does. It changes what you wear, what you eat, what you touch. Eat, drink, touch, taste, smell. That's religion. And it doesn't change your heart at all. You can kill, you can hate, you can be bigotry. Jesus says, I don't give a rip about your external. Give me your heart, because it's out of the heart are the issues of life. And if your heart doesn't change, laws don't mean anything, rules don't mean anything, your wardrobe doesn't mean anything, and that's why we don't put any emphasis on the outward. It's about the heart. You love people who are unlovely. We've had people come in here from all walks of life, from strippers to uh, criminals. And I want everybody to know, you're welcome. I want you here. Everybody's welcome here. Only God can fix you. I can't fix you. I can't condemn you enough to fix you. Only God can fix you. And if He fixes these people, He can fix you. He can fix me. He can fix us all. So I want you to know you are welcome. I know the baggage you carry. I'm not stupid, and neither is the Lord. 
but the incredible love for you means I've got to see the potential in you. He does. Somebody saw it in me when I was 30 years of age, in spite of what I was, but saw what I could be, shared good news with me. And when I gave my life to Jesus, there was an instant justification and salvation, but it took years of progressive change and transformation working in me to be a whole lot different. And I don't need any emails because I probably still need some more work. Okay. All right. I know that. I hadn't got it all together, and nobody ever will till we get to heaven. But boy, the change is dramatic and radical. Power of reconciliation. And so people who have been bitter enemies can become brothers and sisters. People redeemed by the blood of the cross can be reconciled to each other and reconciled to God. Blacks and whites and Hispanics and male and female, people of different nationality, no hostility. What on earth can do that? The government can pass laws, but it won't work. It's only the power of the cross. And there's victory over evil. There's power over sin. Paul writes in the book of Colossians that when Jesus died, he disarmed principalities and powers opposed to God, just like Satan. And Jesus made a public spectacle of them. Remember, that's what the religious leader and people thought they were doing to Jesus, shaming and humiliating him. But what was actually happening on the cross, he was really showing the ultimate triumph of the self-sacrificing love of God and declaring that any darkness that tries to stand in the way of that will be totally defeated. Sin and guilt were ultimately defeated on the cross. That's the power over sin. Now, Satan doesn't care if you have a cross, or you put them around your house, or you wear them around your neck, or you even believe in a cross. He just doesn't want you to know what happened there, that there he suffered a humiliating, eternal, irreversible defeat that can never be changed. And he wants to hide that so that you can have a cross, but 432 laws, guilt, shame, and condemnation. If you knew what happened at the cross, you could never suffer with that. You could never suffer with insecurity, inferiority. I'm just nobody. Shut up. I'm a child of the king. I know what happened at the cross. You're a liar, Satan, and you've been defeated. So he, if he can obscure what happened, he doesn't care how many churches put up crosses this Easter all over the world, as long as you don't know what really happened there. And he took the law and nailed it to the cross and took it out of the way. I don't come to God the Father by law. I come to Him by faith in Jesus. He kept the law. I've never kept it a day in my life, and I'll bet you you haven't either. I don't see anybody glowing in the dark in here. <laughs> That's right. All have sinned and come short, but I come to Him through Christ. And part of what that means is I don't have to be defeated by sin. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. I'm not sinless. But I'll tell you what, I sin less because of Him. And you start to change. You can begin to experience transformation. You don't have to be stuck in an addiction or a trap because of the power of the cross. And that's why for 2,000 years at the center of the Christian faith stands not a candle, not a star, but a cross. Paul says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. See, to them the cross stands for humiliation loss and death. And what they're after is victory, abundance, power, status. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who perish, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And God's primary concern is not that you display the cross, but that the self-giving, self-sacrificial love that was expressed on the cross 
be made manifest publicly in your life, in boardrooms, in classrooms, in living rooms, in every room, that you and I become men and women of the cross. Now, a lot of you culturally come from different backgrounds. A beautiful lady came in a year ago, I think at Easter, and says, I notice you don't have crosses on the wall. I says, no, ma'am, we preach the cross. It's not about how many are displayed. I said, my suggestion would be for you to get on one and die to yourself. That's what they're for. But a lot of people think they're supposed to be displayed. You'll find no evidence of that in the New Testament. That'd be like saying, I'm going to put an electric chair around the, the auditorium because Jesus died on an electric chair. You'd say, ooh, that's terrible. Right. It's a symbol of execution. But culture and tradition minimizes that, dulls our sensitivity to it, and we get caught up and we forget that it's not displaying crosses, it's displaying what happened at the cross through me to others and through you. Let that love of God be shed abroad in your heart, he said. So Jesus gave some pretty sobering words, the most ever recorded in human history. They'd have changed more lives and more people than words spoken by any CEO, prophet, or guru. He said, if anybody will follow me, they have to deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. So, let me ask you this morning as we close. Have you chosen to be a people of the cross? Whatever in my life that is dishonoring to you, Lord, I want you to help me crucify it. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's resentment. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's, I don't know, deception. But I'm asking you right now, will you nail that to the cross? Will you say to God, whatever it takes, how much it hurts, and I know it'll hurt, kill it. Destroy whatever's in me that does not please you and resurrect it so I can become the person you want me to be. And whatever I need to do, whatever help I need to get, I'm going to take up my cross. Will we be known as a people of the cross or a people of wealth, a people of status, a people of power, a people of pleasure, a people of comfort, and a lot of folks in our world have the resources to make that happen, or will I have the courage and character to say, I want to be a man or a woman of the cross. I want to seek to live my life with self-sacrificing, self-giving love. I want everybody to feel important. I want everybody to at least know this God of heaven loves them. I'll mess up a lot, but tomorrow I'll take up the cross again. And the next day, I'll take up the cross again. And as best I can, with God helping me, I'll live as a person of the cross until the end of my life. And I'll receive fullness of life from the one who gave his life on the cross for my sake. I hope you'll make that choice, because then you really understand what Easter's about. And there is no Easter without the cross. Will we, will you become a person of the cross? Let's pray with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Maybe this morning, in the sobriety of just this moment, look in your own heart. Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Son of God? Not historically, I only know about Him. Have you invited Him into your heart? Perhaps there was a time you did, but you've drifted way away. Maybe you didn't mean to. You got off course, out of focus lost your relationship or intimacy with Him, and you need to rededicate that heart and life to become a person of the cross. Remember, this is a spiritual thing. You can have assurance 
that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He died, He rose from the dead, and because He lives, you can live also if you trust Him. For whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Because He lives, I shall live also. Don't even have to be afraid of dying, and we all will. If I can pray with you, and you're not sure, would you just slip a hand up and take it down so I can know to include you in my prayer? Just slip a hand up. God bless you. God bless you. I see hands upstairs, downstairs. God bless you. God bless you. Let's all pray this out loud together, shall we say, Lord Jesus, I confess you are the Son of God. I believe you died for me. You paid for my sin, and you rose from the dead. Come into my heart today as my Savior, as my Lord. Forgive my sin and give me eternal life. Make me a new creation. Thank you for the power to become a new creation and a son or daughter of God. Help me discover your purpose for my life. And with your power, help me fulfill it. Destroy anything in me that's dishonoring to you. Help me be effective. And may what Jesus did on the cross be expressed through me in this dark world. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we put our hands together? Come on. Come on. Woo! For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.